Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And uh, we want to wish you, of course, a happy new year. And I've had good indication that 2020 is going to be a swell decade. decade. But anyhow, um, I, I've had two soft-boiled eggs for breakfast today, two soft-boiled eggs for breakfast yesterday, and all four eggs were double yolk. Now, there you, you can't go. get much. Tell, <laughs> tell, tells you something, right? Yeah, and then to be absolutely sure, on New Year's Day, we had pork and sauerkraut with mashed potatoes, an absolute de rigueur. And not, not only that, we're having it the next day, too. And we're having it the next day, too. <laughs> so, 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 so it's not that your bread fell butter side down, it's that you buttered your bread on the wrong side, is <laughs> the, the old joke. Anyhow, um, our, our topic or theme for today is going to be uh, loosely tea in the broadest of the British senses of tea. So we start out with our most favorite pastry chef who we've interviewed before, Joanne Chang, uh, who has flour bakery. She's got, uh, I think, eight of them, she said. Well, she tells us during the interview, uh, Joanne Chang out of Boston. Now, I, I just said to Joanne Chang, I'm always happy when she comes out with a new book <laughs> because it means I get to talk to her again. <laughs> Joanne's in Boston, and I really should come to Boston sometime and, and visit your, your bakeries and cafes. Um, yes, I would love to welcome you. Yeah, it would be so much fun. How many you got there? How many, how many now do you have, have now? Eight. 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 My God. I was going to say seven, eight. That's a lot. And, and then you have a restaurant too, right? Exactly. Yeah. Now, um, this book is called Pastry Love, a baker's journal of favorite recipes. Are these really your most favorite recipes? They are. I mean, what I did was I, I never planned on writing a fifth book. You know, after writing four books, you kind of feel yeah. like you've, <laughs> you've said it. everything that you want <laughs> to say. And I was going through my journals and my recipe books, and every now and then I'd see a recipe and say, oh, my gosh, you know, I haven't shared this one. And I love this one, and here's one that I've been making at home and never really thought to kind of make it into a formal recipe for other people to make. And it just slowly started to gather steam um, where I just was able to kind of take all of my favorite recipes and look at them all and say, you know, some of these are things that I've been making for years that have slowly, we've tweaked them a little bit. Some of them are things that I've developed after traveling with Christopher. Some are things that I've just learned in the last couple of years through my team. I have pastry chefs who make incredible pastries, and when they present them to me here at work, I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, this is awesome, and we should present this at, at Flower. So it really is kind of a, a, a personal journal of the things that I love to make and eat. And you even dedicated this book to one of your staff. Yes, I dedicated the book to Nicole, who is um, a very, very dear friend, and she was one of our first employees at Flower, and she stayed with us for uh, 18 and a half years, and she actually just recently left. Um, she, In the course of the last 18 years, she had two kids, and 
she and her partner and kids moved um, to Wisconsin, where she's from, so they could be closer to family. So oh, yeah, I wanted to dedicate this for her. Yeah, well, you must miss her. I mean, that's, she. Oh. <laughs> you, you mentioned her all through the books. I guess she's pretty. Um, Pretty big support. Well, let, let's person. put in a let's put in a word for Christopher. Yeah, Christopher, that's he, a great picture of you and Christopher. He's kind yeah. of he's, he has sort of a starring role. I think it's. <laughs> I think, oh yeah, I think I we mean, should emphasize that. He's a he's you know kind of the the very silent partner in all of this. He's the one who has inspired me to grow the bakery, to continue to write books. Um, he's the one who gives us kind of a future vision of what we can achieve, and then. I'm usually the one who's a little bit more um, cautious and and in the day to day, and I think to myself, or I say to him, "There's no way we can do that." And then he <laughs> kind of keeps pushing us, and boom, there we are. And so, you know, eight bakeries later, I've learned to kind of take his faith and just run with it. Because if he has an idea and if he thinks that we can do it, we probably can. And that's been really inspirational. And so he's been such a big part of our growth, and also in this book. I mean, so many of these recipes. Um, you, you write recipes or you bake to share with the people that you love. And so I'm always thinking about him when I'm making a recipe. Is this something that oh. Christopher would love? That's great. And you, you, you have the, the title of your book. You explained why it's called Pastry Love because it's something you figured out early on, right? Pastry Love for us at Flower is a huge part of our training and our vision and our mission. Um, we talk a lot to the team about making sure that the pastries are beautiful and well-baked and presented in a way that are very enticing when a guest comes through the door. And so um, I created the term when I opened the second bakery, and I was no longer able to physically touch every single pastry because I couldn't be in two places at once. Right. And so I would be at one bakery, and I would call over to the other bakery, and I would say, have you given the pastry counter some love? <laughs> have you, you know, looked at everything and made sure everything's baked properly and tried a couple things and arranged them? And after a while, it just kind of caught on that I would just say, have you done pastry and love? Pastry and now love. it's just pea love. <laughs> pea love. <laughs> I'm not so sure that works as well. <laughs> but, you know, uh, it is powerful how you present things. We just had our children and grandchildren visiting for Thanksgiving. And uh, I, I went to, we have a local French pastry shop, and uh, he's French and uh, trained in France, and he makes beautiful, beautiful pastries. And so I, I got a bunch of those, and I got this big, it's a, a pentagonal, I guess, China, white China plate, and, and put oh, those wow. around. And the kids just went nuts. Yeah. And of course, because you got, if you bought nine, you got three free ones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, we got We got 12, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even look at the price. <laughs> it was very particular. Stuff, who's, yeah. who's that guy who has the place in London next to the Victoria oh, yeah, Coach Station? Oh, yeah, that guy. Uh, either Dominique Ansel or Dominique. 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 We went to his place in London. Oh, wow. And it was... We were just... Yeah, he's tremendous. Well, you know, I mean, the British love their sweets. And yeah. yeah. Well, Dominique actually started out... He's French, but he started out in New York City. We we yeah, went about a month ago. Right. Um, my uh, executive pastry chef and I went there, and we did a little pop-up at his bakery to promote pastry love. And it was... Such an amazing opportunity for us to kind of see what goes on in Dominique Ensel's bakery and in his head, you know, kind uh, yeah. of behind the scenes. 
Exactly. Yeah. And and you pointed out, I mean, you don't come from a big dessert tradition. No, I don't. <laughs> but you always had I think, I think you I think you created um, one somehow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> let's talk about the organization of this book. Um I find I mean, practically you can read your baker's dozen and it it sort of it's like a culinary um the baking crash course. Yes. I mean, it's, it's great. And even the things, and you're very adamant about it. You know, I always, <laughs> <laughs> you are. So I, I, I was feeling guilty that, I mean, I have a, a brand new scale that I don't use at all. I can't remember oh, where I you put it. Oh, you use it, Anne. <laughs> That's then, the first thing I tell everybody I know, who I wants know. to be a better baker to, to get a kitchen scale. It makes it so much easier because you can weigh everything directly into a bowl. You can tear the the scale so that it goes to zero after you add something so that you don't have to, you know, use multiple containers. It just, it really streamlines everything. Oh, I, I mean, I know it. I just, I feel guilty when I hear you tell me about it. <laughs> That's why I'm so adamant because I want to make you feel guilty so that you'll do it next time. <laughs> Then you move on to master techniques. And, yes. uh, yeah, I mean, this is a culinary crash course, I'm telling you. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and then, and the equipment. And, yes. and then ingredients. Yes. And I mean, I, really, I love that you use salt, by the way, in your recipes. Oh, yeah, I'm surprised at the number of pastry recipes I encounter that don't have salt in them because you know, sometimes people sound a little surprised. Why would I use salt in a dessert? But, of course, you're not trying to make the dessert salty. You're just using the salt in the same way you would for a savory application. It highlights and brings out the flavor of whatever it is that you're making. And so adding salt to any pastry, especially vanilla and lemon and chocolate, I find it makes such a dramatic difference. And, of course, I feel the same way about um, acid, lemon juice in particular. Absolutely. Yes. So, and you give a little tr- shout out for the importance of the vanilla beans. I always feel it, it, it is such hard labor, the vanilla production growing. But they are, and they're so expensive. I recognize that, but they make a really big difference in the final product. And so I, I always try to encourage anybody, if they can, splurge a little bit and buy an actual bean. Oh, yeah. They will, they will definitely see the difference. Right. So you you organize this book around um, the, the how do we tell, the style the type of pastry like your your favorite meal is breakfast you do yes. brec- breakfast pastries and and uh, what are some of the other categories here? So we have cookies and cakes and tarts. I mean, I organize the book in the way that my mind works when I think about pastries, and that is different categories, kind of based on techniques. Um, you know, making breakfast pastries, uh, it tends to be things like brioche and scones and muffins, and that's a certain type of technique. And then making cookies is another type of technique, and making uh, 
bread is another one. And so just the different ways in which you can take all of these basic ingredients, you know, flour, sugar, butter, eggs, etc., but then combine them in different ways to come up with a whole menu of things. So I tried to I tried to do it um, so that it was simple for people who are interested in baking to go to one chapter and find something that they're excited about to bake. Now, do you have a recipe for crumpets in there? <laughs> for crumpets? No. <laughs> we, just, we, we just interviewed. We just interviewed. Yeah, we just interviewed someone who a perfect uh, tea, I think uh, it was. Right, right. Ah. She has, she has crumpets. I, I haven't. I haven't seen a crumpet <laughs> for probably thirty-five years. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's some good scone recipes and a biscuit recipe. Yeah, there are. Nothing that's specifically a crumpet. have a crumpet so so the butter and jam run through the holes and make a mess. <laughs> oh, it sounds delicious. Yeah. <laughs> no, you um I think that your recipes are first of all they're very creative and they're very refined. I mean, you've obviously worked on them all until they're at a really high level. It, you have different influences of parents also from uh, your travels. Like I was compelled by this tahini spiral shortbreads. The tahini, oh, the tahini spiral shortbreads, yes. Yeah. Well, we were um, noticing that tahini is a newish, ing- I mean, it's not a new ingredient, but it's something that more and more people are cooking with and baking with, and we wanted to come up with a confection where we could introduce tahini to our guests, and I love just a really simple shortbread. So we made a, a tahini shortbread, and then we want we we know that people eat with their eyes, and so coming up with something that looks visually compelling. Tahini is brown, and most pastries are brown, and um, tahini is white sesame. Uh, so I thought, what if we took black sesame okay. and made a shortbread out of that? It's and then, very pretty. Yeah, and then I've you know it's a very simple technique to make the beautiful spiral that you see in the book, and so I wanted to teach people how they could make two different types of doughs and then combine them together so you get this really, really stunning spiral shape. You know, I I really like pie, most of all the confections, I, and you have a lot of pies. Yes, pies are, I think, people ask all the time, cake or pie, cake or pie, what's your favorite? I think I like pie. I mean, I love cake, but I really do love pie. I love having a vessel for fruit or cream or pudding or something. And so um, the pie chapter is pretty robust. Uh, a lot it of really is. great fruit pies, uh, a banana cream pie with salted caramel that I love, um, a strawberry slab pie, which is amazing. Oh, yeah, that was good. Yeah, and, but this, by the way, um, it, I mean, there are certain things that just jump off the pages that, as you read this. The bittersweet chocolate orange Truffle tart with salted caramel. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's a, wonderful. That's something that I've um, made for the holidays over the past years, and every year we try to do something a little bit different and try to improve it a little bit more. And so, this most recent version, which I put in Pastry Love, um, it's a chocolate truffle tart, very very simple. But then we add this um, this thin layer of salted caramel, which, like I was saying before, the salt really just brings out so many flavors in anything you bake with. So the salted caramel really brings out the flavors of the chocolate, of the caramel. Um, and then just adding the candied oranges on top really makes it very, very festive. Pretty, yes. And they're a lot of fun to make. Yeah, they look they're fun. 
Here's another one you're having fun with. I'm not sure I go along with this one. <laughs> the, the Super Bowl cupcakes. I'm not so <laughs> sure. <laughs> Tell us the story about this. So Super Bowl cupcakes are uh, kind of like you just said. They're not. I'm not really sure they're my thing. I'm not a sports person. I'm not really a junk food person. But when you're in Boston, you kind of have to be a sports person just by – I don't know, by osmosis, there are so many people who are into sports, and so every year at the Super Bowl, we try to come up with a menu of things to uh, help celebrate um, the Super Bowl, and what better way than to take, you know, a a chocolate cupcake with some peanut butter frosting, (laughs) and then pile it high with, you know, we've got pretzels, and potato chips, and just chocolate, and just ways to make it, like, really, really Kind of honestly, it's a little it's a little over the top, but yes, I don't know. I think it, when it you're... reminds me of the, that thing we had last in the, this year of um, manic milkshakes. Something ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, he just wants something a little crazy. Yeah, here's, the, here's the important question: Does Tom Brady buy a flower bakery? <laughs> <laughs> That's, you know what? I, I wish he did. I, I think his diet prevents him from eating the oh, things yeah, that he makes. Oh, yeah, he's very strict about what he yeah. eats. He's vegan, isn't he? Something like that. I know that he's got a very strict diet. He's a, he's a cheater. We know that. Oh, no. He shouldn't do that. <laughs> well, What's Joey supposed to say about gonna, that one? Well, she, she doesn't have to say anything. I, I, as a Steeler fan, I have to sneak it in there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, these people are so serious about the sports. Yeah, we yeah. are. So it's what are, a, well, I already it's mentioned this um, uh, this crepe cake. Oh, the I passion fruit crepe cake. Yeah, yeah. That, that that's fabulous. What is one of your most favorites? I mean, I do love that passion fruit crepe cake. It's pretty labor intensive. Yeah, I know. Um, I didn't it can think be a little. I could do it. I read it. Yeah, it's, it can be tricky, but man, when you're done with it and you've got this layered cake of 20 to 25 crepes with a little bit of passion fruit cream in between each one. Yeah. And then when you slice it and you can see it all, it's, it's pretty impressive. I do love um, that cake. Um, another favorite that I have is the strawberries and cream chiffon cake. Oh, yeah. It's a very light chiffon, vanilla chiffon cake with some lightly sweetened whipped cream and fresh strawberries. And it's like super simple, but so delicious. Um, I actually made this for my mom when she was visiting. She was in town for a couple of months. She had some knee surgery, and so she was she had to um, stay here for a couple of months, just uh, getting some rehab. And I made it for her that when she got out of surgery, and she literally ate almost half of the cake in one sitting. <laughs> well, so to nice. me, it's just such a <laughs> that's why you nice. bake, yeah. you know, to make things to make uh, the people around you who you love happy and. She was definitely very happy with that. And nobody gave me a, a strawberry chiffon cake after my knee surgery. Well, you, know, you, know, you don't like dessert, so why, why would I bother? Exactly. And here we have Sarah's adult spice cake, which also looks off the wall. It's wonderful. Oh, yeah, and that I love this recipe. Not only is it a really, really wonderful recipe, but it's also a gift from one of our longtime pastry chefs. Sarah, who was with us for probably about 13 or 14 years. Um, she also ended up moving and having kids. And But she um, she has her own baking business now that she does out of her um, out of her house. And she made this cake and shared it with me so that I could share it with everybody for Pastry Love. And it's a spice cake that has rum-soaked layers, 
and then some apples, and then a ginger whipped cream. And just all of the flavors together go well so marvelously. Yeah. Now, there are a lot of things in this book that I think people probably never even thought they should learn how to make themselves, among them being sprinkles. Oh, yeah. They're so fun. Um, That's actually something that people have been making already. The book's been out for about a month, and people are making the sprinkles and sending me pictures. Um, You're right. You don't... You don't think about making sprinkles, but it's, no. it's pretty straightforward, and it's really fun. Yeah, I guess. I mean, you'd feel very proud of yourself if you managed to right. do that. So, right. And so uh, other, um, what is the section called Master? Master Recipes. Yeah. This yeah. is, yeah, it's like all of the basics. There's a number of recipes uh, within all of the chapters that refer to these master recipes. And so it's just kind of all of the basics of baking, whether it's a pie crust or a brioche dough or something like, or a ganache, something that once you have this building block, you can kind of jump off from that and then build your own recipes. So it's really, it's an essential part of the book. It's not the sexiest part of the book because it's really just the basics. Uh But once you learn the basics, then you can really make amazing desserts. You have... Rice Krispie Treats. I was surprised about that one. <laughs> oh, yeah. These are really popular. So we do Rice Krispie Treats all of the time at Flour, and then I made a peanut butter version um, for Father's Day. So it's Rice Krispie Treats with peanut butter and then a peanut butter ganache on top, and people go crazy for them. They're they're so good. And, and then there's Billionaire's Shortbread. And, again, you, you mentioned uh, your husband's fondness for yeah. <laughs> junk food. <laughs> I think this is one of his favorite things that I make. It's um, so millionaire shortbread. I think it's a actually. I, I wonder if you saw this when you were in London. It's a British dessert. It's a British confection, and it's shortbread with some caramel and then chocolate on top. Um, and so I call ours billionaires just because the shortbread has a little vanilla bean, and then the top of the the chocolate has some cocoa nibs, and it's it's really fun to make all the component parts together, and then you have this. It's almost like a Twix bar, but like times ten. That sounds good. I like Twix, yeah. And and then of course, uh, once you make your homemade marshmallows, you'll never go back. Right. Yes. Homemade marshmallows are sort of like sprinkles. I think that's something that most people don't think about making because you can just go to the store and buy them. But they're they're pretty straightforward to make, um, and you feel this sense of pride when you've made your own marshmallows, right. especially exactly. if you're going to have cocoa or something. Yeah, they're they're really they look fun. Good, yes, and and of course we were talking about the candy, your candy making, and I I would love right now to have a, a, a big bite of English toffee with. All oh, the, I love the toffee. Yeah, I yeah. Do. So you salt the almonds just a little bit to keep it from getting too sweet. Well, I don't know what else I can tell people. Tell them to buy the book. I think, say. yeah, I mean, just buy the book. It's Joanne Chang, Pastry Love, or, or go visit her flower bake shops, in, in, which there are now eight in Boston. And uh, and I wish you'd, you're not going to write another book you've, you indicated, which is too bad because we'll have to call just Chat because that's the only time exactly, I get to call. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Even if I don't write another book, we should still keep in touch. Great. Maybe I'll do another book. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Joanne Chang, uh, much success with this. It's really a very special pastry book. Pastry Thank you love. so much. Thank so you, So great Jen. to talk again.
Thank you. Okay, so after the break, we're going to get some insight into what it is you're supposed to drink with your flour bakery pastry, right? Yes. Something like that anyway. Yes, something like that. So don't go away because we'll be right back after the break. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back, and as I promised, uh, we were going to uh, be talking to Emily Holmes, um, about what it takes to have a good and proper tea. Um, the, the title of the book is Good and Proper Tea, From Leaf to Cup, How to Choose, Brew, and Cook with Tea, which just about covers everything. Um, the author is interesting. Emily was born in Paris, lived in France, Portugal, New York, and India before settling in the United Kingdom. Um, but she saw there was something that needed to be done to revitalize this whole British tea program. So here you go. Go ahead. Uh, I'm a tea drinker, but I also drink coffee. So what do you call that? I'm not an omnivore. I'm an omniv some or other. <laughs> so, well, most people are like you. Most people drink a little bit of coffee in the morning. Maybe start the day with a cup of tea, then they have coffee in mid-morning, and then they change back to tea after lunch. So most people drink both. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, this book, Good and Proper Tea, as I told you, the title makes me hear my mother-in-law in my ear, <laughs> <laughs> uh, is, is subtitled From Leaf to Cup, How to Choose, Brew, and Cook with Tea. And it's so much more than even that. I mean, it's a totally complete reference book on tea. And you love tea. Well, I hope so, yeah. It's why I do like passions. Yeah. Yeah, I um, I I don't drink coffee. Unlike you, I can very much appreciate a cup of coffee now. But I I have I've always drunk tea, um, and and have kind of been lucky enough to have this opportunity to learn so much more about what I thought already was just a great thing that I enjoyed every day. Um, and so over over the course of the last kind of six seven years or ten years probably have um have learned so much that I wanted to kind of collate it in something that was hopefully easy to digest and for people to kind of share in all the things that I think are so exciting about the tea. Help me out a little bit here, Emily. Mm-hmm. Does it make a difference if you put the milk in before or after you pour the tea? <laughs> well, that's one of, my, one of the most hotly contested questions there is. Well, give, <laughs> so we'll give start it, with give, that one. Give, 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 give us an answer. You're the expert for the day. Well, um, uh, it does make a difference, although there are many more things to get right in making a cup of tea, so it's probably perhaps one of the least important. Um, it's There's lots of kind of um, fables about kind of why some people used to put milk in first to do with kind of protecting the fine bone china from the, the extreme heat of the tea, um, and, and whether or not you put it in before and after is kind of a very hotly debated topic in the UK, certainly, about, you know, what kind of person are you if you put it in or after, uh, before or after. I, I personally put it in after because I brew it in a pot and then I put the milk in, um, uh, sorry, I put the milk in first, I thought I completely wrong way around, I put it in first, I brew it in the pot and then I pour it over the milk. And the way the reason I do that is because 
um, if the milk's in there first, that first bit of hot tea going into it will kind of bind really evenly and naturally um, and allow the proteins in the milk to kind of um, uh, react with the, the heat of the tea. Whereas if you're kind of putting a tiny bit of cold milk into a large quantity of very, very hot tea, that can slightly alter the proteins in the milk and you get a slightly less creamy, less um, favorable, I think, taste. The first time I was in England, I was in school, um, I was my traveling companion had tea with lemon, and you've never seen such a <laughs> distress. <Yeah. laughs> I know. Well, now now we know we, we have to we have to allow for every single type of tea drinker. I've I've seen everything. I I think I'm sure I'll see even more extraordinary things. I've seen. Lawyers who put three tea bags in at once because they believe they didn't have time to brew one, so they put three in and brewed it for about five <laughs> seconds. Um, I've seen people put pepper on their Earl Grey. Um, uh, I've seen, you know, all sorts of different things. So I now know that you, you can kind of, you just have to offer advice, offer them great tea, and then they can, you know, after that, it's down to them to do whatever it is that they want to do with it. No, you, you, would, you would be not happy with me. I put uh, a sliced turmeric root in my green tea <laughs> oh wow I've never I've never thought to do that and you know no, I, to, to actually to activate the turmeric you've also got to grind pepper in there <laughs> yeah so you do both of those every morning not every morning I do in the, in the morning I do coffee the afternoon I do green tea but not wow. every day do I do this whole thing with it well, and, and turmeric and your, your friend was drinking what they called used to call then Russian tea Russian tea. Do they still call it Russian tea? With lemon? Tea with lemon? Uh, I don't think they do because they tend to refer to Russian tea as Russian caravan, which is a particular blend, um, a very oh, smoky okay. blend. All right. um, others, I mean, certainly they might somewhere. And, and again, there's just so many names and nuances and cultural kind of norms surrounding tea that it's impossible to ever have one thing. And certainly... British tea drinkers are more stuck in their ways than anyone. Um, so, uh, so selling tea to the Brits is, you know, the ultimate challenge. <laughs> no, you, you have such a complicated background since you you lived all over the globe because your father was a diplomat, um, and but you ended up back in in England. Uh, yeah, so-called the land of tea drinkers. I was so shocked after I married Peter to find out nobody in his family drank tea; they drank coffee. <laughs> No, they do. Oh, really? they, they do drink tea. Jeannie does, but oh, yeah. your mother didn't drink tea. Well, uh, your sister Pat didn't drink tea. No, I understand. Uh, your mother-in-law didn't drink tea. Your brother they didn't, didn't drink didn't tea. They didn't live up to their reputation. No, no, my, no Pat, Pat and Keith used to brew tea all the time. I thought it was incredibly uncivilized. When you arrive at somebody's house in the middle of the afternoon, what you really need is a beer. <laughs> <laughs> they make a coffee. They're always making coffee. You, you don't need a cup of tea. <laughs> now, now here's another question, because part part of the social life of business when I started when I started my career in the 1960s was the the coffee cart came around around about 10 o'clock in the morning and everything stopped <laughs> while while everyone had coffee or tea, whichever they wanted. Do they still do that? I wish there was a cart. <laughs> um, I, I think the, the cart has perhaps been replaced by um, a kind of inundation of speciality coffee shops and, um, and places where you can go and get, uh, you know, a, a, in the UK it's kind of the, the hot drink to get is a flat white on the way to work. So a kind of 
um, a takeaway. You know, we're all so busy we can't possibly stop for a second, so we need to grab a coffee on the way to work. So um, I think perhaps that's the bit that's changed is that we, you know, we, do, we no longer get served it at our desks, so instead we just grab it on the way in and drink some of our needs, which is sort of totally depressing in a way, um, but, uh, but seems to be the way that people do it. But I think um, what's very interesting is that because... Um, coffee has created this kind of, um, you know, over the last 10, 20 years has created this kind of amazing, um, uh, very functional need. So people have obviously got a taste for coffee, but there's also a real functional kind of reliance that we have on it. Um, and as we've got busier and busier and more and more time poor, um, that kind of, that, that need to have that functional caffeine hit in the morning has become um, heavily relied on. Certainly in the UK, coffee shops have absolutely kind of boomed. Um, and exploded on our high streets. Um, and actually, partly that and partly lots of other factors um, at play and busy, frantic lifestyles and always connected and, you know, our phones and social media and all these things that are kind of adding up to very poor mental health. I'm, sh- I'm sure it must be the same in the States. Oh, yeah. Um, it's all in the world, <laughs> just about. Well, yeah, probably. Um, but, but, we, but weirdly, tea has then sort of almost found this new happy place where... It's a bit of a counter to that. So although people, you know, like yourself will, will still factor in tea into their busy day, there's also a kind of a, a, a very natural um, balancing act that tea can kind of help play. So, and it comes in various different, um, from various different kind of trends that are happening all at the same time. One is that people care more about what their coffee tastes like and therefore that translates to wanting to care more about a tea, what a tea tastes like. So having a good cup of tea rather than just any old cup of tea. Yeah, or any you're old cup you're of hitting now on the, the background and the purpose and the, um, the, the, the yeah, how, how your business evolved. And it starts with the fact that here you are in England, the, um, the land of tea drinkers, uh, and you can't get a decent cup of tea anywhere. Absolutely. So <laughs> that introduces us to Watson. No. That, yep. I think that's very clever. Someone named Holmes has a, um, a tea truck <laughs> called Watson. What else, right? <laughs> well, I can't even take credit for it because actually we launched on Kickstarter and I asked all of our Kickstarter backers to name the van and they all voted and they chose the name Watson. So... All of those people whose names are still on the back of the van, engraved on the back window, um, they chose Watson. So, um, well, you know, I'm glad you, you said that Watson is still alive and moving because I think absolutely a full color photograph of it, and it's a really smart looking van. It is. It is. It's, it's getting smarter by the day. It keeps raining in England, and rain. Old vans don't like rain, but um, but no, he's he's out and about weekly, so he's still very much alive. Well, that was the start of, of your tea empire, but um, you, you expand. Tell us the progress, how you ended up with, um, you import, you, um, you have a, a brick-and-mortar shop, you have an online business. Tell us a little bit about your background. I mean, the, the uh, describe your business. Good yeah. Yeah. So as you said, I started it because I was frustrated because I was a tea drinker and I couldn't get a decent cup of tea and I didn't understand how that could be possible, as you say, and what you know we like to call our nation of tea drinkers. Um, and uh, street food had just kind of um, taken hold. It was quite a trendy way of starting a food business. Kickstarter had arrived, so those kind of things came together. I bought myself a truck. I decided to put on Kickstarter, and the beginning of our kind of life as good and property was transforming this 
tea truck into this truck, sorry, into a kind of mobile tea bar. Um, and Kickstarter, thankfully, was on our side. Clearly, there were lots of frustrated tea drinkers out there too. So we trans, trans, um, translated it basically into this into this tea bar, um, and basically spent the first year or so. Um, I mean, I, I was literally in the van, very, very cold, with a hot water bottle <laughs> in my jumper. Um, uh, on probably one of the coldest winters I can remember, even now, I think uh. it was probably the coldest one was that one when I started. Um, out on the streets in London, I was at markets, I was parked outside King's Cross, which is one of the main stations here, um, and I was selling cups of tea. So we, we brewed the morning pots with timers and um, uh, so that the customer could kind of see what we were doing and see that it was a better cup of tea. We had about, I think, eight teas on the menu at the time. Um, and we were brewing cups of tea for people to obviously take away. We didn't have any sitting or anything. It was very much coming up to the van, ordering their tea. People to account for the kind of brewing time. Occasionally, we we had a thing called um, twordering, where you could order Twitter was the kind of the hot platform at the time, um, and you could tweet your order as you were coming out of the station, and then we'd have it ready for them um, when they arrived at the van. Um, and that was kind of our, you know, and I was then going home at 6 p.m. and baking all the cakes and then coming back again and doing the same thing the next day. So oh, that's you kind do of your own baking, too. Like. You do uh, I don't now. I don't now. Luckily, I had much, much better bakers do it. But, um, <laughs> but uh, I did at the time, certainly. Um, so, so, yeah, Watson and I were very, very closely, <laughs> closely acquainted for the first but you graduated. Uh, you graduated. Yes. Uh, now, um, people who want to know about there's a certain mystery about tea because um, there's so many different kinds of it. Um, there's um, you have to know the temperature for each tea. Um, you simplify all that in this book, don't you? Yes. Yes. So hopefully um, there are just a key few things, and actually anyone that brews coffee will know this well as well. Um, you know, good water, water at the right temperature so you don't burn the leaves so that you get something nice and sweet and fresh and rather than something that might taste a little bit bitter because you've burnt the leaves. Um, uh, bring it for the right amount of time so it's got time for the, all the kind of yummy flavor to infuse. Um, and that's about it. And good leaves, obviously. Um, it, so I was surprised that, um, that one thing that I didn't know is uh, the, you explained the caffeine in tea and coffee, or I guess this also would be in cocoa beans, um, it really is a reaction of the plant to uh, threats. It's a, it is, it is. Not I love that. Threat. I never knew that. That's very clever. I know, I know. I know. I'm really um, proud of the plants for doing that, and especially since I like caffeine. <laughs> I know, I know. It's amazing, really. Um, no. There's all sorts of extraordinary things. There's even an oolong tea, which has an extraordinary flavor because these little crickets bite it when it's growing um, in the summer months, and then it kind of creates this amazing defense um, enzyme, which is what gives it its flavor. And there's extraordinary things that nature does. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. Well, there's that tea, yeah. called, pu- is that tea called pu'er. Pu'er is fermented. There is, there is. Yeah. But, but, that's a- but here, here, here's another mystery. We, we have a Chinese friend, very, very rich surgeon Chinese friend, oh, yeah. who, br- who brings in boxes of green tea that he, he says cost a million dollars or no two hundred dollars a box somewhere close to that but but he said when you're well, making green tea, when you're making know. green tea you infuse it but then you throw the first cup away yeah yes there are um so every every um region seems to have very different um kind of takes on how to brew it and and rituals associated with it and, and they certainly in china tend to believe 
that the first, um, I, think, I can't remember exactly which order it goes in, but the first one is for your enemy, the second is for your friend, the third is for your wife, the fourth is for your lover, I think something. I'm never quite sure whether the lover or the wife come first. But the idea getting, being that it's getting progressively better and better, um, and actually a kind of wash, as it's known, that kind of first infusion, that actually being, um, you know, being the sort of the least good is um, is relatively widely accepted, actually. So... Yeah, in an ideal world, you would always wash your leaves. No, no, I didn't see and hear uh, some you know, people send us samples all the time. You get samples all the time, which you taste in your uh, your warehouse. Um, but yep. Anyhow, um, we had to run for a while on these uh, flowers that I understand are hand stitched together, and and when you put them, they bloom, they blossom. You put the in 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 its a tea context, right? Yes, yes. these all yes. tiny little hard balls, and you you infuse it with hot water, and they bloom. And my grandchildren love that. They have no. They are they're absolutely beautiful. They're very very visual. So if you've got a glass teapot, they're kind of absolutely beautiful to to they're watch. They're very tasty though. <laughs> yeah, they're definitely more more for the visual excitement, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, now, you, you they can a, be very good. You have a very important segment of the book that we haven't talked about yet, which is what you eat when you're drinking tea. And I, <laughs> and I was absolutely amazed to see that you have a recipe for people to make their own crumpets. <laughs> now, I, I well, you, were you amazed because it was so perfect? <laughs> well, no, it's just kind of unusual. I haven't, I haven't even seen a crumpet. In 50 for, years. For, for, probably, for <laughs> probably 50 years. We used, we, used to, we used to toast crumpets on the gas fire of our, of our dormitory rooms. And when I was at Cambridge, we used, to have, <laughs> we used to have a group meeting in the middle of the afternoon where we made tea and we had this little fork <laughs> that you, that wow! You, you held up against the gas fire, so, How so that it got warm, and then then when you took it off the fire and put put the butter on it, ran through the holes. Yeah, well, that's I mean that's exactly what people want to do with crumpets now. No, um, the crumpet recipe is in there basically because um, so following the van, we opened a tea bar, bricks and mortar site. We kind of sell our teas to cafes and restaurants and hotels, and we um, obviously sell our things online. But in the tea bar specifically, and from the van, in fact, in fact, Watson houses a lot of crumpets. Um, when we first started. Um, selling tea, we needed a food that we were, was going to be, you know, certainly in the van, obviously we couldn't do lots of things, so we were like, we need a, we need a, a tea-ownable food, and, you know, with coffee, you often get croissant, pastry, and all these different things, and and, and people don't tend to drink tea at sort of, um, you know, 8 a.m., so therefore the, the, the pastry kind of thing was, was always slightly too late in the day, you know, people want those things first thing as their breakfast. And similarly, they don't actually go that well with a cup of tea. They go much better with coffee. So we were trying to kind of think of what would be a really great, universally loved thing. And, and funnily enough, crumpets often sort of slightly occupy a very similar space to tea where, you know, they aren't necessarily particularly good crumpets in England. You know, certainly people basically buy supermarket crumpets. But there are, <laughs> there is a hugely classless love for crumpets. People absolutely love crumpets. And so we started making sourdough crumpets because we thought well if we're going to do crumpets we better do really good ones so we started we made our own kind of sourdough starter and then basically started 
tweaking and tweaking and tweaking recipes for crumpets and started selling them. And honestly, I have to stop people who call me the crumpet lady. And I'm like, it's not about the crumpets, it's about the tea. Um, but people absolutely love crumpets. And, um, and I, therefore, I couldn't have done the book without the crumpets in there. And, and at festivals, when we take the van to festivals, we, we, we literally sell thousands and thousands of crumpets. Because there's something so comforting about them. As you say, the butter runs through them. You can yeah. put anything on them. They're amazing. They're versatile. You can put cheese on them. You can put cheese and marmite. Marmite. The highlight. You can put jam or, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Put marmite on them. No, mm-hmm. eat it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, I, re- I read something the other day that really disturbed me. And that, and that was something to do with Lions Corner Houses going out of business. Oh, I don't know about that. And they were, they were cert- oh, certainly they were, they were suffering from a revenue standpoint, and it's it's interesting because there used to be one of these on every street corner, more 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 than there were McDonald's. Yeah, that's so sad. Well, I mean, very easy to imagine that that might be true though. At so, the that, so they're still out there. <laughs> I I, I think so, but I don't know. I'm afraid. You just ignore them because you're doing your thing, right? Yeah, let, me, <laughs> let me do just some more information about the book because that's what we're supposed to be um, telling people about is that you go through and explain um, the, the process of, of tea growing. Um, I had no idea that uh, the tea plants would grow so tall if you didn't trim them off at the top. I, it's amazing to me because I always think of yep. those little bushes, you know. Um, uh, but, oh, by the way, this this tea that Peter was telling you about, this I guess it was four hundred dollars a box, or whatever, that was supposedly picked by monkeys in the, in the mountains someplace in China. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's very hard to get good tea out of China, so you know those presents could be worth a lot. <laughs> I imagine, and who knows what it's laced with? Yeah, but yeah. so you go through the uh, the different types of. Of, um, tea, uh, in case people are confused about that, you go through all the the mechanics of brewing tea. You go through a little meditation idea about uh, how that enhances the experience. Uh, terroir, you discuss that. Um, you then go through cooking with tea, uh, tea cocktails. I love that one. That um, hibiscus fizz is a knockout, isn't it? <laughs> I know. Well, that basically, we, we obviously I wanted to kind of share the knowledge and, and information and things that I've been lucky enough to learn along the way. But but also, you know, the business has allowed me this amazing um, opportunity to just have a bit of fun with tea and get creative with it. Which is why the second half of the book is sort of actually lots of you know recipes and things we've made and we do events all the time. So we'll do everything from kind of tea tastings to workshops to interviewing people ourselves. So a cup of tea with us, one of our interview series. And obviously, we want to serve something, and it's in the evening. So tea cocktails became a really great thing. And actually, cocktail balm and love tea is a great ingredient for, for cocktails. And we actually recently had a cocktail competition with all of our um, kind of wholesale partners who um, presented some amazing drinks to the panel of judges. Yeah, I like this white tea as a hero. White peony and pear as a knockout as well. Beautiful. Yeah, that's yummy. Very yeah. yummy. Do they do iced tea as well? Me? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. I'm and I see in, in the U.S. And you in the U.S., you guys have lots of, you know, you're used to having lots of delicious iced tea. And actually, in the U.K., it's kind of Lipton or nothing. It's just, it's been um, very, you know, people don't associate iced tea with something good quality or yummy. They associate it with something very, very sweet. 
Um, and so, so yeah, I see doing kind of different colourful, yummy, you know, some sugar-free, some sweetened iced teas is, is kind of relatively new as well for the UK. Partly because we have lots of less sun in the book. <laughs> some, yeah. some, some American jokes. You have ice cream made out of teas, oh, which I think is natural. Some, some, yeah, yeah. Some jokester once upon a time I heard said that they they, they had to take the they had to take iced tea off the, off the menu at the University of Alabama because somebody lost the recipe. What? <laughs> <laughs> I, I well, yeah, and in Alabama it's probably sweet tea, which is kind of very very. Oh, yeah, yeah, our, yeah, our kids yeah. lived in the south for a while, and that was disgusting. That really is horrible. <laughs> Oh, we, we, very, very sweet, isn't it? We have yes. Kenyan purple tea right now. Yeah, what, I don't know what that is. Oh, wow. Do you know what that is? Kenyan purple tea? Um, I don't know much about it, but I, I believe it's from a slightly different um, plant. Okay. So it's oh, not a Kenyan yeah. plant, but, it's, uh, but it was, uh, it's got lots of... I, 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 I've been sent lots of samples of it, and I believe it's got lots of extraordinary health benefits, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, we have a lot of samples of we should close we should close this interview with the classic English expression everything stops for tea <laughs> <laughs> well this well, is it a, goes. a stop. operation here <laughs> Emily Holmes your whole business this book and you're you're on a roll <laughs> whatever, you, whatever kind of tea you're drinking I want some of that <laughs> <laughs> well, it's definitely the tea that keeps me going. I've now got a now got an eighteen month old son as well, so oh wow! Um, so certainly need the tea to keep me going on those early mornings. <laughs> well, this is a, a, a great thing, and, and three cheers for your stylist, because the food stylist or the tea stylist did a great job. It's a toss up between it it's a toss up between where you were born and we should say vive la France and where you're living with when we would undoubtedly say rule Britannia <laughs> <laughs> definitely the latter I feel much more um, uh, much more at home here I think so that right, would probably well, be more appropriate well, thank you, thank you well, so nice much. job Emily Holmes again thank you very much good and proper tea and thank you this is the answer so to any me. question you have about tea <laughs> thank you <laughs> Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Um, now we have um, a very central um, perspective on, on tea. Um, we're talking to April Strongen, who I keep mispronouncing her name. We've interviewed her before. Um, she's from Capresso and Jura. And uh, we're talking about the electric Capresso kettle, um, but we're also talking about current tea trends including botanicals, um, more specialty teas at home, the right equipment, um, all, just about everything you want to do about tea. So listen to April and up your game in the tea category. And we're going to be talking to April Strogen. She's practically a regular on our show. She represents uh, Capresso, one of our favorite, favorite brands, 
of uh, kitchen appliances, especially electric kettles. I mean, so many other products, but what we're going to be talking about is the Capresso electric kettle, which, um, I mean, I can't live without one of those in my kitchen, actually. <laughs> so, but what we're going to couple it with, April is a tea expert, and she's going to talk to us about tea trends and preparing your own teas at home, having the right kind and the right equipment. So let's launch into it, April. Tell us about, um, first of all, the kettle I have and the one that, that you just developed. Yeah, so I think you guys have the iconic glass kettle from us, right? I think so, the glass one. Yeah, so we've developed, we were the first ones actually to come up with the glass um, kettle. And what's funny is people always say, oh, they don't want to watch water boil. But in our kettle, people love just staring at it and watching, like, the bubbles form, right? Do you guys well, do that at home? Well, I have to do that because I don't have the temperatures on mine. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the other one that, that we gave to the gardener that was not a compressor <laughs> was metal. And Peter kept saying... Uh, why can't we get a, a glass one? <laughs> so, so, you, so you can see, so you can see how much water you put in it. Yeah, I mean but, it's all together. Yeah. It's but all I together. don't know if you were going to watch the bubbles form, which I did no, because no, I don't no, have the temperature. No, never, never was going to do that. <laughs> okay, so uh, you have the temperature, and it's, the temperature is very important, as is the um, the uh, amount of time that, that that you steep it, right? Yeah, so we have a new kettle, the H2O Select, and it has actually 11 different temperature settings. So, oh, Moses, what's for? Yeah, that's important. If you're brewing, like, green tea, you probably want it to be around, like, 160 Fahrenheit. Um, and then as you kind of go up, like, white tea is maybe, like, 175. Your oolong tea is 190. And then when you're getting to, like, your more, like, black and red teas, it's that 212 boiling okay. um, temperature. So when you're brewing, like, a delicate tea, like a green or a white tea, at boiling, it gets kind of, like, bitter, and you're not getting, like, the best flavor that you could be if you were brewing it at the proper temperature. So having a kettle that does all of that for you just makes it so much, you know, easier. Um, And then each tea also has, like, a slightly different steeping time. So the lighter teas, you might want, like, two to four minutes steeping, uh, where the darker teas, you might want it, like, you know, four minutes and beyond. Now, what about a classic English tea like Earl Grey? I mean, how, how, um, where does yeah, that fit? I would do that. That has like a black tea um, in it as well, so I would do around like 212 Fahrenheit. Okay. It has a herb in it called bergamot, which I never knew. It's not, bergamot, a, it's not right. even all tea. Oh, interesting. Oh, it is. Yeah, bergamot is. Uh, yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah, Some, um, somebody's calling. Well. Must be the Pope. Yeah. <laughs> So, but no, I mean, everybody seems to be suddenly drinking tea. You said actually that even iced tea is popular year round. Yeah, definitely. And we see people, you know, even in the winter ordering iced tea. I went out to lunch today and had a giant glass of iced tea with lemon. So I think it just refreshes you. It's a little bit like different flavor than water, but it's still healthy. It's not like a soda or a juice that has a lot of sugar. Uh Now, I noticed that um, there are all these different, this type. I mean, tea itself comes from a single plant, right? Yes, yeah. It's actually a camellia. Camellia sinensis, yeah. Yeah, and so even like green tea and black tea, it's the same plant. It's just one is fermented and then one is not. So the green tea is just dried right after picking it, where the black tea is like left out 
to kind of darken. And then the oolong tea is kind of like the halfway point between those two. And then pu'er. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pu'er is a different animal altogether, right? I think so, yeah. And like then you can get like floral teas, and um, I've even had like little rosebuds in tea. Um, or now people are even making like mushroom tea and things like that. Yeah, I, I saw, um, I saw, for I saw, antioxidants. Yeah, I saw a shelf of that at Whole Foods today. With what? Yeah. Mushroom, mushroom tea. tea. I don't know. I got mushroom jerky from someone, and I'm not sure I was crazy about that, and I love mushrooms. <laughs> I'm not sure about mushroom tea. <laughs> I think you kind of have to mix it with some other teas so it's not maybe so harsh. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, I, I must be a purist because somehow uh, I think that you move out of the tea range and into tisanes if you're talking about all this other stuff that you've, you're talking about. I think people just like to, like, experiment with different flavors. So I think that's what's great about this day and age is you can just try so many different things. You can research online and, you know, see what you like. Okay. So, no, you, you're not going to recommend a special kind of tea. You just want everybody to experiment. Um, and what about the, the the right equipment? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely important to have, like, for me, obviously, an electric kettle. It brew or it so much faster than the stovetop. Um, you know, we've done some tests in the office where it takes, you know, 10 minutes to boil a pot of water versus in the kettle it can be like less than five minutes to heat up a whole pot of water. And, uh, and even worse, so, it, and even worse if you have an electric stovetop. I'm seems, sure, yeah. It seems, it seems, <laughs> seems like it um, never boils then. Yeah, and then the other thing is it also shuts off automatically, so it's very safe. So you don't have to, you know, always keep an eye on it. Um, you can turn it on, and then it'll automatically shut off. Even when you lift up the kettles, they'll automatically shut off so that you're never going to have to worry, you know, about turning the stove off. Yeah, well, one of the things that we discovered, however, is that some kettles, electric kettles, um, do not actually turn off if it's empty, and that ruins the the, um, the kettle. So we we, we, we killed one at least. We killed at least one that way. Oh. <laughs> that, 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 that was probably me. You did, was you? <laughs> <laughs> it was me, yeah. There you go. But you're supposed to um, have a, a, a thing on your new your new kettles where it turns off if the kettle's empty. Is that correct? Yes, yeah. So if it doesn't detect water inside, it'll automatically shut off as well. So that's called the overheat protection. Okay. And, but it's, it's not all not all models have that. So you have to uh, for Capresso, all the models have it. I can't really speak on other brands, but for Capresso, it does. Now, what's the, what's the difference between Capresso and Jura? Yeah, so um, Capresso was founded in the U.S. Uh, 25 years ago. Uh-huh. And then in, I want to say, like the 2000s, Jura actually purchased the brand, and they're based in Switzerland. So oh, okay. we distribute right. the Jura automatic coffee machines in the United States. And then we also sell the Capresso brand in U.S., Canada, and Mexico. But but the but the Capresso brand's made in the U.S. Uh, it's not made in the U.S., but we develop all the products okay, here. Okay, got it. Uh, it's mainly made in China, um, but we sell more like kettles, electric coffee grinders, um, drip coffee makers, espresso machines. Whereas Jura focuses on like the automatic coffee centers. Now, April, you, you think maybe I'm not always paying attention to you, but let me tell you, I remember that you use a Jura coffee baker. 
I do at home. I do have a Jura coffee machine, but I also have a Capresso kettle. <laughs> but I'm amazed that I remember that you used the Jura top of the line Jura coffee because you must love coffee. I should, I should hope so. <laughs> yeah, that's great. If you can, if she can't have one at home, who can? <laughs> yeah, you can also make tea on the Jura machines because a lot of them have the hot water spouts. Oh, yeah. And then the newer models also have, like, three different temperatures so that you can brew a green tea, a black tea, um, and then also brew it and steep it at the right temperature. You mean in your coffee maker? Yeah, uh, yeah, in the automatic coffee centers. Really? It's an automatic yeah. coffee center. It's not just a machine. Yeah, I know. It's yeah, it does hot water, cappuccino, coffee. It's not, yeah. just, it's not just a machine. I mean, it's a big thing. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how to work. <laughs> no, it's really simple. Everything now has the you know the beautiful touch screens on it. Oh, um, I, I, so basically, well, you just touch an icon and it makes everything for you. Well, we, well, we have a Capresso coffee center, but I have to tell you when the co- when the old coffee maker died, I, w- I went to Bed Bath and Beyond and bought a new one. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know what? Um, you have to learn, we learn all kinds of things like multi-cookers too. We're in a different era. I'm waiting for the robots that will make all this for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, Jura is like a coffee robot. <laughs> it is. Right. Well, anyhow, um, what else do you need to tell us about tea, April? Um, well, I think a lot of people now um, drink it for the health benefits. You know, um, it doesn't have as much caffeine as coffee does. Um, and then I think people are also experimenting um, of mixing, like, tea and alcohol. Really? So we've seen a lot of, like, craft oh, cocktails. cocktails. That's right. You know, and I know you were mentioning whiskey and uh, tea before, and I think especially on a hot night, that's, like, a perfect way to end the day. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sounds good to me. Any excuse is good enough. Exactly. Um, and then I think people, again, just more of like the health benefits. Um, we've seen like a rise in like the matcha tea lattes. Yes. What and is made- matcha tea? Yeah, so it's matcha like is like a... powder. It's a green tea that's like ground into like a fine powder, but they really select like the most premium leaves. Really? And I would say it's like very vegetative. Like, yes, I don't I'm want to say grassy, but... That. Yeah, I think it's grassy. I'm not as crazy yeah. about that as I am about the regular green now, tea. No, that's, that, that's not that maca that they that they produce in Peru. No. Which is, which is, supposed, is supposed to be good for guys. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is from Japan usually. And then they actually, like, usually mix it with, like, a whisk and hot water. Um, but then you can also make a latte with, you know, either dairy milk or soy milk, oat milk, things like that. Um, so I think people these days also like anything that they can post on social media. So like bright colors, like you were mentioning the purple tea earlier. Uh-huh. I think all of that's trending just because it, it's so beautiful to look at. Yeah, but somebody send us some booze that's, that's uh, green, emerald green, isn't it? Or no, it was blue, blue. Blue, that was gin. Blue gin, gin, blue gin. gin. It's it's very, very startling when you pour it out of the bottle. (laughs) It comes out blue. (laughs) That'd probably be good mixed with some tea. (laughs) Tastes like good gin, to tell you the truth. Oh, nice. I mean, there there are times of the day when you should drink tea, and there are times of the day when you should drink blue gin. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so what else are you working on, April? Anything? Um, 
I mean, we did also launch, um, like, maybe a year ago, a pour-over kettle. Are you guys familiar with, like, that gooseneck spout? Yeah, we have one of those. Tell me what I'm supposed to do with it. Yeah, so it's perfect for coffee or tea. And what this kettle has that maybe some of our other ones don't is, like, the built-in countdown timer. So it's really good for steeping tea if you want to set, you know, between four or five minutes. I'm really great at starting my tea and then forgetting that it's steeping. I know we do that, too, yeah. <laughs> So this will at least remind you with a little beep. Um, but then that gooseneck spout is also really good for, like, a precise pour. So if you wanted to make some craft, you know, pour-over coffee at home, uh-huh. it's really good because then you can, like, precisely pour, you know, that hot stream of water over the coffee and kind of mix it in the filter. And that's just a good way to experiment with, like, really high-end coffees. You get that really nice flavor from a pour-over coffee. So this kind of kettle is just perfect you know, to match with that kind of brewing method. I didn't know. I have it, but I just don't know what to do with it. So now you told me. Yeah, now you know. Now I know. Yeah. Or even if you're brewing, like, maybe into a small cup or, you know, a travel mug that might be kind of slim, it just gives you more control over your pour than a bigger spout. Uh, We must must stay awake at night dreaming up these things. (laughs) Yeah. And then our pour-over kettle also has 72 different temperature settings. So it's adjustable in... Well, it's adjustable in one degree increments. So, you know, maybe some people want like 140 to maybe just heat some, you know, baby formula or, you know, something not that hot. Um, And then you can just kind of go in one degree increments. Because especially for coffee, I think people like to experiment like 200, 201, 202. Really? Yeah, they want to try those little differences with the coffee to see if it, you know, helps with the flavor or changes the flavor. Do you think this one degree makes a big difference in flavor? Um, so, some people can. do, right? Some people do, I guess. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I, mean, I feel like maybe even just mentally, it's just a mental thing, but... If you get bored, it gives you something to do. Yeah. <laughs> While you watch the bubbles well, rise in the kettle. Well, <laughs> Well, April, it'll, it'll, it'll soon be time for your birthday because your birthday must be in April. So. Yes, it is. <laughs> is, is it really? Well, it is, yeah. It actually is in April. There you go. Well, yep. my, mine's in November. What's my excuse? <laughs> well, I thank you again for talking to us, April, and explaining oh, all welcome. these mysterious um, – to be totally with it and sophisticated um, – Woke, I guess, is the term, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'd be perfectly woke. I need to, to get on the stick about this temperature thing with the tea and the pour over yeah. coffee. Okay. Am I, am I going to stop the recording here? Yeah, I think so. Okay, i just got to figure out where I'm going with my... My mouse has gone... Oh, shit. okay. Well, uh, well... Well... Hey... <laughs> you woke me up there, dear. <laughs> I didn't know. Um, I, I guess we're wrapping today's program, and uh, we want to point to the fact that we're now entering our 17th year of this podcast. I think we're one of the earliest ones yeah. next to the uh, Splendid Table so that we started li- in 2004. So, wa- so wave if you've been listening to us for 14 years. 17. <laughs> 17 years. Well, 16. We're, we're, now we're en- entering the 17th year. We, we won't be able to see you, but we'll be with you in spirit, and we hope you'll join us in spirit the same time, same place next week. And until then, bye-bye. <laughs>